man, well, I am really, really glad the power's back on. <laughs> um, I don't know if you can tell, I'm dealing with a little bit of a cold, and it would have been difficult to project my voice to all you guys, so I am thankful for a microphone. Uh, it seems that I'm always up here uh, closing out another year. Um, you guys are just saving the best for last, right? Uh, but seriously, uh, I do look forward uh, just to my opportunities to stand up here and preach. It's an honor. It's a privilege uh, to do so, so I'm very grateful to Gary and Lewis and the elders um, for the opportunity. Uh, several weeks ago, I decided to read First Timothy. Now, that's an odd way to start things off, but that was really the beginning of the journey to today's sermon, though it wasn't really the reason at all why I decided to read it. Um, there was no real prompting for me to read that particular book. It was just one of those things where you, you turn and you start reading. Um, I wanted to read it in one sitting. I wanted to do it without distractions. Uh, so I used a reader's Bible. Are you guys familiar with a reader's Bible? Do you know what those are? Well, a reader's Bible, what they do is all of the chapter and verse numbers are removed, all the footnotes, cross-references, all those things. So it takes away all those distractions that you might see in the text. And it, it, it no longer looks like your Bible. It just kind of looks like any other book uh, that you're reading. Um, so if you're like me, you... you you may like using visual stopping points when you read. Um, mostly I'll use like a chapter or, or, or a heading as a stopping point in, in my reading, especially when I'm reading my Bible for sure. Um, I'll stop at the end of a chapter. I'll pick up the following chapter the next day. The problem with that approach, uh, particularly if you're reading one of the epistles, is that you're interrupting the author's flow of thought. First um, Timothy is a letter wrote to Timothy, but and if you received a letter from someone, you wouldn't stop just a few paragraphs into it and say, well, I'll pick up the rest of that tomorrow. Uh, you'd most likely read the whole thing at once. So why do we take this approach when we read our Bibles? Uh, I don't know. It's the only book that I know of that we do this with where we'll open to the middle of a book, read a few sentences, and assume that we've understood its meaning. Um, I admit I've been guilty of that too. And those chapter and verse numbers are helpful when one needs to find a particular phrase or sentence, but sometimes they can cripple our understanding of the text as we read it out of context. Right, okay, so that mini rant is over. We'll, we'll move that to the side. So I decided to read First Timothy in one sitting in my reader's Bible. I want to understand all of what, Timoth or what Paul is trying to say to Timothy in the full context of the letter. And as I'm reading, I kept noticing a particular word being used often. And that word is godliness. In all godliness and dignity, the mystery of godliness for the purpose of godliness and so on. Uh, it seemed to me that Paul's repeated use of it meant that it must be of some significance to what Paul is saying to Timothy. Um, having just completed a course in Greek, I'm eager to do a word study, so I jump right in. Uh, and what I find is quite interesting. That Greek word that's translated into godliness is eusebia. I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, if not, uh, my, my grade w is not reflective of what I know, I guess. Um, but that word Eusebia only occurs 15 times in the New Testament, but Paul uses it 10 of those times and only in the pastoral epistles, eight of which are in 1 Timothy. So over half of its occurrences fall, uh, in the New Testament are right here in this one letter to Timothy. That word has cultural ties to ancient Greece. Um, one commentator says that the 
in the Greek world, eusebia connotes an attitude of reverence, which can be directed to a wide range of persons as objects. In classical Greek, piety, that's the most common way in which that word is translated into English, by the way, piety, uh, could be directed toward deceased relatives, living relatives, the ruler, especially the emperor, judges, aliens, oath, and the law in general. Thus, the word referred to respect for the orders of domestic, national, and also international life. So Eusebia would be the proper way in which a person would conduct him or herself in civilized society. And he goes on to say that since all of these orders of life were under the protection of the gods, it's understandable that the words came to refer more and more to the gods. So we have here a word that originally had no religious ties to it, described a respectable way in which to live one's life that over time became more and more associated with cultic worship and gods. So, uh, uh, yeah, cultic worship of the gods. So why is Paul using this word that has a particularly pagan connotation and just how is he using it in his letter to Timothy? Uh, in Hellenistic Judaism, that's, that's uh, 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 Judaism in the Greek culture, Right? There's already a precedent set of translating concepts of the Jewish religion into the Greek language. What's notable is how the translators of the Septuagint used the word Eusebia. And just by the way, a reminder, uh, Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. Um, it isn't used very much in the canonical books, but its usage is interesting. Take a listen to these verses. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Isaiah 11, verse 2 says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 33, 6 says, And he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. What phrase do you notice in all of those verses? The fear of the Lord. Can you guess which Greek word that this phrase is translated into in the Septuagint? Eusebia. It seemed that Eusebia gathers into one idea the knowledge of God and the appropriate response to that, the fear of Yahweh. Seen in light of its usage in the Septuagint, Eusebia doesn't seem to be used by Paul in 1 Timothy to refer to some sort of pagan or secular moralism. Instead, he's using it as a way to describe how the Christian ought to live given, it, uh, given their knowledge of and faith in Jesus Christ. However, that still doesn't explain why Paul uses it here. Why in 1 Timothy? Um, and then it's hardly used anywhere else. So uh, I believe the answer comes from the text itself. If you're, you may already be in 1 Timothy, but flip over to chapter 2 for a moment. Now, in chapter 1, Paul charges Timothy to correct the false teachers that have infiltrated the church in Ephesus. And in contrast to the false teachers, Paul inserts his own testimony to show, uh, testimony to show what a life shaped by the gospel should look like. Um, and in chapter 2, we come across Paul's first usage of that word Eusebia. Let's read verses 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge you that in treaties and prayers... Petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, 
so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So Paul begins his instructions for Timothy by urging that the church pray. And the fact that he mentions prayer first is an indicator of its importance in Paul's mind. He says to pray for all men and kings and all who are in authority. He said that it's good and acceptable because God desires for all men to be saved. And that the one mediator between God and man gave himself as a ransom for all. There's an obvious and intentional universality of Paul's instructions to pray. But those prayers aren't without direction. Those prayers are to be for the salvation of all men. Listen again to verses 3 to 4. He said, this is good and acceptable. So what's good and acceptable? Those prayers for all men. In the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So Paul isn't arguing here for some sort of universal salvation that says that all men will be saved. However, he is saying that God desires for all men to be saved, and therefore the church also should desire all men to be saved, and its prayers should reflect this desire, be universal in its scope, though only some will actually be saved. Now, whether or not the church had begun to accept some sort of uh, uh, elitism in regards to salvation, or maybe they had become indifferent to the lost people that were outside of the church, uh, or not, it's clear that Paul wants the Ephesian church to be concerned with salvation for the lost, and it begins with their prayer life. And he even relates his own calling there in verse 7 to further his point. He says, for this, for the salvation of all men, I was appointed preacher and an apostle as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now in verse 2, we see where Paul has pointed out a specific group of people Uh, that he wants to be included in those prayers. He says all men, but then he goes back to say, for kings and all who are in authority. Now this would encompass anybody who is in a position of authority in the Roman Empire, all the way from the emperor himself down to the local leaders uh, there in Ephesus. Uh, And Paul gives specific purpose for these prayers. There's a desired outcome when it comes to praying for governing authorities. He says, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, what does he mean by that? Uh, Is he saying that Christians should desire the easy life, uh, free from any trouble or turmoil? Uh, Is he saying that Christians should desire to live a low-profile life that doesn't get involved in government or other people's lives? Um, I think when we place it in the context of this whole section regarding prayer, um, what Paul means becomes clear. If he wants the Ephesians to be concerned with salvation and evangelism by praying for all men and their salvation, I think that purpose for prayer is present here as well. Um, His purpose for the prayer has two parts. It says leading a tranquil and quiet life and in all godliness and dignity. There's two parts there. 
The first part has to do with an ideal set of circumstances. So an effective government that might include officials who were also Christian because we're praying for their salvation as well, it could provide a stable society where that tranquil, quiet life, where the evangelistic mission of the church could be more easily carried out. It's something we would desire here as we pray for our own governing officials. Lord, we pray that our religious liberty kept intact so that we can freely share the gospel so we can freely advance the mission of the church. That's what we would pray for. Um, the second part describes the character and the observable manner of that life, that tranquil and quiet life that's to be lived. So the character of it. Uh, and it's where our word Eusebia shows up. It's used by Paul to describe the authentic Christian life. It can be observed out by people outside of the church. And Paul's use of Eusebia here is no accident. He knows who his audience is. Now remember, Timothy is in Ephesus, uh, pastoring the church there. And Ephesus was one of the most prominent cities uh, in the Roman Empire. It was the Roman capital of Asia Minor. Uh, it was incredibly prosperous. But it was also home to the Temple of Artemis, which has a massive impact on Ephesian culture. Uh, one historian notes that uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the people of Ephesus regarded the city's relationship to her in terms of a divinely directed covenant relationship. That sounds awfully familiar to the church's relationship to Yahweh. Uh, but yet here it's used to describe Ephesus with the goddess Artemis. So given this relationship, those Ephesians uh, would have no doubt been familiar with Eusebia as a, as a way to describe their devotion to Artemis, a way of life that any Ephesian would aspire to. This familiarity familiarity with the term is the reason Paul uses it here and throughout the letter. Um, he takes this term that's so connected to Ephesian thought and their way of life and uses it in a similar manner uh, to which uh, it's used in the Septuagint to describe the authentic Christian life that's to be lived out in response to a knowledge of, knowledge of and faith in Jesus Christ and lived out in front of a pagan society who uses that same word to describe their devotion to Artemis, to the gods. His purpose for the use of Eusebia is no doubt evangelistic. Uh, another commentator says that it becomes clear that Paul's aim is to express the theology of a dynamic Christian ethics by means of the language of the day. Paul almost certainly intended also to reinvent the language and subvert alternative claims about the nature and source of godliness associated with the politics and religious cults in the empire. He uses the language of the day, even reinvents it for his own evangelistic purposes, to reach the Ephesians with the message of the gospel. So now that we understand why Paul is using it, uh, what does he have to say about Eusebia, or godliness, in the rest of this letter? Uh, so I want to point out, uh, I want to put forth to you three truths um, that I think we can gather from 1 Timothy regarding godliness. First, Jesus is the source of godliness. Jesus is the source of godliness. Following instructions on the role of women in the church, Paul gives the qualifications for overseers and deacons in the first part of chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Uh, you could say that these offices within the church uh, have godliness as a prerequisite um, uh, the, and the qualifications are a good description of what godliness looks like. 
So our, our qualifications for elder and deacon here uh, is a good description of godliness. But when we come to verses 14 to 15, Paul states his purpose for writing Timothy in the first place. He says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So Paul is looking back here to say, everything that I've just said is so that the church will know how it ought to act. It shows the church what godliness looks like. But Paul is also looking forward uh, to set up future discussions regarding godliness by providing a theological anchor for godliness in verse 16. Verse 16 is, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And then he goes on to tell us the answer to the question of what is the mystery of godliness? That which was previously hidden but has now been revealed. Who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So who is it that Paul's referring to here? Church answer, Jesus. Uh, so in this, the, it's the theological high point of the letter. Paul is explaining that the mystery of godliness is Jesus. The only way in which to obtain true godliness comes through Jesus. Only by a way of relationship with the Savior can one truly live a godly life. The source of true godliness is Jesus. And Paul's phrasing of that confession, great is the mystery of godliness, also connects it back to that missiological focus of prayer that we see in chapter 2. Turn over to Acts 19 for a moment. Um, uh, in Acts 19, Paul had been performing uh, miracles in Ephesus. And the local tradesmen there saw that this was very bad for business. Um, we're going to start in verse 24. So head to, head to verse 24. And let's read. It says, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there a danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she, whom all of Asia and the world worship, will even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And if you go down to verse 34, it says again, A single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Perhaps Paul is recalling this experience in Ephesus. So instead of the phrase, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness, who is Christ Jesus. Artemis is not the mystery of godliness. She is not the source of godliness. Jesus is. The qualifications of the godly men who can serve as elder and deacon cannot be achieved through Artemis. They cannot be achieved through Allah, they cannot be achieved through Krishna. They can only be achieved by knowledge and faith in Jesus Christ. In the most shocking revelation you may ever hear from a sermon at SNBC, 
uh, our elders and deacons must first and foremost be Christian. I know you're surprised by that. Um, but by connecting that missiological focus of his instructions on prayer from chapter 2, this confession of faith regarding Jesus, uh, uh, to this confession of faith regarding Jesus, Paul intends for the church to use that concept of Eusebia, of godliness, as a means of reaching Ephesus with the gospel of Jesus. Even the phrases of the Christ hymn in verse 16, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, they're missiological in their thrust. Uh, Philip Towner says the Christ hymn integrates missiology, the worldwide gospel, and Christian living, godliness, into a dynamic vision of Christian existence that originates in the incarnation and vindication of Christ in human history. Jesus is the source of godliness. Uh, second, sound doctrine is the basis of godliness. Flip over to chapter 6, verse 3. Uh, and here, Paul picks up on his charge to Timothy from chapter 1 to confront the false teachers um, uh, the, that had crept into the church. So let's read. It says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest uh, in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. So Paul gives a twofold test for sound teaching. He says, first, it must agree with Paul's teaching. Uh, teaching that is centered on the person and work of, of Jesus. Paul says over in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a, reg through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, anyone who teaches a doctrine that's different than Paul's is wrong. Second, the results of their teaching must produce results in the life of the hearers. It must lead to godliness. A different commentator says, as throughout all the pastoral epistles, right teaching and right practice are inextricably bound together. Uh, Paul goes on to describe the character of the false teachers by saying that they're conceited and understand nothing. He says they're more interested in disputes about words than they are the truth. And they produce envy, strife, abusive language, and evil suspicions, not godliness. Uh, in fact, he says that they think godliness can be used as a means of gain. So behind all of the lies of the false teachers, their fake piety and their perceived intellect, um, uh, lies their true motivation. They intend to use their standing uh, and respect in the culture to gain influence and wealth. Uh, in Titus, Paul says that they teach things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Uh, so Paul says that godliness can be a means of great gain when coupled with contentment, not when it's coupled with greed. Sound biblical teaching provides the foundation for authentic Christian living. So how do you know if what you're being taught is sound doctrine? How do you know that I'm just not all completely lying to you? Uh, well, Tim Challies has a, a great article on his blog called The Five Tests of Fault doc False Doctrine. 
Uh, you can read it for yourself, but I want to highlight what he says those five tests are. He says one, test one is the test of origin. Sound doctrine originates with God. False doctrine originates with someone or something created by God. Remember that Paul said in Galatians that the gospel didn't come from him or any other man, but from Jesus. If Jesus is the source of godliness, then sound doctrine, which is the basis of godliness, must also come from Jesus. Test two, the test of authority. Sound doctrine grounds its authority within the Bible. False doctrine grounds its authority outside the Bible. So does this doctrine appeal to the Bible for its authority? Or does it appeal to something or someone else for its authority? Uh, Test number three is the test of consistency. Sound doctrine is consistent with the rest of Scripture. False doctrine is inconsistent with some parts of Scripture. Remember that Paul said that false teaching does not agree with the sound words of Jesus. It doesn't agree with the rest of Scripture. So is the teaching refuted by the rest of Scripture or is it established by it? Test four is the test of spiritual growth. Sound doctrine is beneficial for spiritual growth. False doctrine leads to spiritual weakness. Does it produce spiritual growth in the life of its hearers? And test five is the test of godly living. Sound doctrine has value for godly living. False doctrine leads to ungodly living. This is the test that Paul puts forth in 1 Timothy 6.3. The false teachers were living ungodly lives. And their teaching led to the ungodly living of their adherents. But sound doctrine is the foundation on which a godly life is built. It's the basis of godliness. Third truth. So if Jesus is the source of true godliness and sound biblical teaching is its foundation, then the means by which godliness is developed in the life of the believer is through spiritual discipline. So number three is spiritual discipline is the means to godliness. If we head down a few verses in chapter 6 to verse 11, Paul says, but flee from these things. Uh, And by these things, Paul means the pursuit of material things as one's primary motivation, which is the true motivation for the false teachers. He says, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Paul calls Timothy a man of God and instructs him to turn away from the temporal and pursue the eternal. Actively seek out these things of which godliness is listed. Uh, So there must be intentionality in the pursuit of godliness. Uh, We're not meant to wait for godliness to happen in our lives, but we must pursue it. So how might one pursue godliness? Turn back to our scripture reading that Gary read for us in chapter 4. Paul describes in those first five verses how there will be some who fall away from the faith. Uh, It becomes uh, uh, very familiar to us as we read it, as we can almost see uh, our own culture and and even people we know falling victim to false teaching. Um, But he says they'll fall away from the faith, fall victim to false doctrine. And there in verse 6, He gives instructions for Timothy on how to prevent this from happening to the church and himself. Verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose 
of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul says that Timothy must discipline himself for godliness. He compares this, this spiritual discipline to the physical discipline that an athlete might pursue, uh, saying that bodily discipline only has value in this life, but spiritual discipline has eternal value. Godliness does not come naturally. One must discipline himself in order to live a godly life. Uh, Don Whitney, in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, says that the desire and the power for spiritual discipline are produced by the grace of God, but Christians themselves must practice the disciplines. For example, a deep, insatiable hunger for the Bible is a gift from God, but we are the ones who must turn the pages and read the words. We must be disciplined to live an authentic Christian life. In verses 9 and 10, Paul says it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is for this, for, for godliness, we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially believers uh, commentators are split on whether that trustworthy statement means verse 8 or verse 10. Uh, I don't know that it matters too much, but I think verse 8 makes a little more sense. Uh, the laboring and striving in verse 10 uh, refer to that spiritual discipline that's mentioned in the previous verses. Godliness doesn't come easier or without hard work. Paul gives us a reason why one would put themselves through the rigors of spiritual discipline, though. He says, because our hope has been fixed on the living God, because our hope lies in eternity, because our hope is anchored in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for the salvation of all men. Because we know Jesus as Savior and Redeemer, we strive to live a life of total devotion to God that brings glory and honor to his name. This brings us back to that idea of Eusebia being that union of the knowledge of God in that appropriate response in our observable manner of life. So what's meant by spiritual discipline? That Greek word there uh, uh, is also where we get the word gymnasium. So it makes sense why Paul's comparing spiritual discipline to bodily discipline. It means training. Uh, like an athlete would train his body for competition. The Christian is to train himself for godliness. Spiritual training for the purpose of an observable godly life lived out in front of a watching world. Spiritual discipline uh, is the means to godliness. Uh, so where do we go with all this? Um, well, first, if, if Jesus is the source of godliness, we must first place our faith in Jesus for salvation. A godly life cannot be lived apart from a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's the primary reason uh, for Paul's usage of Eusebia in this letter in the first place, to inform the Ephesians, that true godliness can't be attained through their devotion to Artemis, but only through Jesus. Um, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus for salvation and entered into that covenant relationship with him, uh, I or any of the other pastors here would love to talk to you about that decision. Um, second, if sound doctrine is the foundation for godliness, then study God's word. Uh, it's our hope that one of the reasons that you come to Signal Mountain Bible Church uh, is sound Bible teaching. Uh, for me, I know that it's one of the reasons that I applied to be youth pastor here over nine years ago. Uh, it's what drew me in. Uh, we take seriously the handling of God's word. 
uh, when we stand up here to teach and preach. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, I mean, I've probably spent over 20 hours or so preparing for today's sermon. Um, that's from all the reading and studying and researching and writing. Uh, I'm not ashamed to admit that I write everything out word for word. You see, it's nice and pretty. Uh, I do that to keep myself focused uh, and on point so that I don't stray and ramble because I can do that if I'm not, if I'm not reined in. Uh, uh, so I don't share all that with you so that you're impressed by any of that. Um, I share that, that so that you know that when I stand up here, I take the task of preaching seriously. I want to do my best to handle the Word of God correctly, uh, to be careful to bring out what is there in the Bible, uh, and be careful not to inject into the text anything that isn't there. Um, I agonize over getting it right, not for the sake of my own glory, but for the glory of God. And I know my fellow pastors do the same in their preparation um, for their sermons as well. They put in a lot of time and hard work um, um, so, that, so that we pray that we're, we're delivering uh, uh, God's word correctly to you. Uh, but you also shouldn't blindly accept everything we say either. We're still imperfect men who can and likely will get some things wrong. Uh, and it's your duty to test everything we say against Scripture. This is what the Bereans did according to Acts 17.11, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Spend time reading your Bible. Study Scripture to know what it says. Memorize Scripture. Meditate on it. Measure everything that you hear taught from the pulpit against the Word of God. And in doing so, you're laying the foundation for a godly life. Third, if spiritual discipline is the means to godliness, then practice spiritual disciplines. Uh, godliness isn't something that happens naturally in the life of the Christian. It doesn't come easy. Uh, it's something we must work toward. It's why Paul says that we labor and strive for it. Uh, the author of Hebrews says in 12.11, uh, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So we must instill spiritual disciplines, such as praying, fasting, studying our Bibles into our daily life. Uh, re uh, remember in chapter 4, verse 8, Paul says that bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Uh, he doesn't say that Bodily discipline is, has no value, but that spiritual discipline has a value that lasts because its value is eternal, not temporal. So I'm not saying to you, put down your running shoes and pick up your Bible, um, but how many of you uh, are so devoted to your exercise routine that you couldn't fathom missing your daily run or your workout, but you'll make excuse after excuse as to why your prayer life stinks? Parents, how many of you are dedicated to getting children to all of their practices and games but haven't taken the time to teach your kid how to read and study their Bibles? Physical discipline isn't bad, but don't neglect the spiritual disciplines in the process. Um, that book I referenced earlier, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, is probably the most popular book there is out there on spiritual disciplines. Uh, in it, Whitney says, Christians are called to make themselves by the Spirit's power do what they would not naturally do. Practice the spiritual disciplines in order to experience what the Spirit gives them a desire to be. That is to be with Christ and like Christ.
Uh, in it, he lists several disciplines that are beneficial for living out authentic Christianity, such as Bible intake, prayer, worship, evangelism, serving, stewardship, journaling, etc. Um, uh, another good resource, if you're looking for one, is Disciplines of a Godly Man by Kent Hughes or Disciplines of a Godly Woman by his wife, Barbara Hughes. Um, finally, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't conclude by revisiting why in First Timothy Paul emphasizes godliness or Eusebia in the first place. Um, he intended to use the idea to win lost Ephesian souls for Christ. Uh, the mission of the church is to take the gospel into all the world. And while Paul may have had Ephesus specifically in mind as he used this concept that was incredibly familiar to them, uh, to the Greek world regarding their conduct in society, I don't think it's too far-fetched for us to say that godliness also plays a huge role in our own witness to the world. People probably won't care too much about uh, what you have to say about Jesus if they don't see you living a life that reflects what you claim is true. With that in mind, all Christians should aspire to godliness in order for the church to fulfill its mission to see all men come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Uh, let's pray. God, we thank you that you desire all men to be saved. Because of the saving work of Christ, we can call you Father. You are our Savior. God, we pray that you would grow in our hearts a desire to glorify you in how we live. Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit would help us in our pursuit of godliness to help us as we spiritually train ourselves to live out our faith in front of a watching world and that by our lives, they will see that we belong to you. Lord, use our lives and our knowledge of Jesus Christ to bring many others to saving faith in Jesus. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.